Launch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of iRelaunch, and your host for today. Today, we welcome Laura Zygman. We are going to be talking to Laura in a two-part series. We had so much to talk about, and I'm thrilled that we could cover so many topics, but we decided to do it in two parts, and this is part one. Laura is the author of the highly anticipated and very popular book, Separation Anxiety, that was published in hardcover and just recently released in paperback. It has received praise all over the media and beyond. And here's what USA Today had to say about it. And they start by talking about the main character, Judy. Judy is in midlife limbo. Her career as a children's book author crashed and burned. Her son has hit his obnoxious teens, and she can't afford to divorce her pot-addled husband. Oh, and she's taken to carrying the dog around with her in a baby sling just to feel connected to something. A frank and funny portrait of the everyday anxieties we try so hard to hide. We'll talk more about this with Laura. Laura is also the author of Animal Husbandry, which was made into the movie Someone Like You, starring Hugh Jackman and Ashley Judd. And she's also the author of Dating Big Bird, Her, and Piece of Work. She's been a contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Huffington Post, produced a popular online series of animated videos called Annoying Conversations, and was the recipient of a Yado residency. Laura lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her husband, son, and deeply human Sheltie. Laura, welcome to 321 Relaunch. Thanks, Carol. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and I have so many questions to ask you, but I want to start by asking about your career path. I know that you have relaunched a couple of times along the way, and I wanted to know if you could just give us a brief overview of what of where you started and to where you are now. Yeah, sure. My career started really in a very traditional way. I, um, after college, moved to New York, which I had never planned on doing, and I ended up getting into book publishing. And I worked for 10 years um, at Random House. I was a book publicist for mm-hmm. various divisions of Random House. So I had a very traditional I was going to say nine to five career, but in New York publishing, it was like nine to nine, um, mm. very long, exhausting kind of uh, job. And after 10 years, I really burnt out. And, and that's when I moved to Washington with no job. I had been working, you know, either as a waitress or in some capacity since I was 12 or 13. So I, this was the first time I moved to DC without an actual job job. And it took me a while to find one. And I found one. And so that was a little bit of a relaunch because I, there were no book publishers down there. And I ended up getting a job after months of looking at, at the Smithsonian and it was um, kind of a weird job, but it was a six month contract. And so I was under a lot of pressure to kind of like find another job after that. But that's when I got that job, it was very nine to five and I would, because it was a government job and I was home at my new apartment, which had a bedroom, unlike my one in New York. And I was able to finish mm-hmm. my first novel. And that's when I was very lucky uh, right before my contract at the Smithsonian ended to sell that first novel, Animal Husbandry, and it made kind of a splash. It was one of the first books of its kind, which was later called Chicklet. But at the time, it was just a novel, just a book. Mm-hmm. And I got really lucky. It sold in a lot of countries and film sale and all that. So I was able to really quit my day job and become a full-time writer. And I wrote four novels in total. That was Animal Husbandry, and then I wrote three more 
during that time, I met my husband. We had a baby. We moved back to where I'm from, which is Newton, outside Boston. And I sort of assumed that my career would just kind of continue. You know, when you're in your late 30s, early 40s, you're kind of like you're on a path and you just assume that it will continue. And of course, that's not what happened. And that's not what happens with a lot of people. It just, um, I was shocked to sort of hit a wall in terms of my career, mainly because life was interrupting. I had a lot of things happening at home and it just really affected my ability to be creative and to write. And that's when my fiction writing really stopped. My last novel had been published in 2006 and Mm -hmm. I had terrible writer's block. I and, and yet I had to earn a living. And so I pivoted, as they say, to ghostwriting. And so I go, was ghostwriting for several years. And I'll just wrap up the answer to this question. And after ghostwriting for a bunch of years, I was really bereft that I was not writing my own uh, work. And I was able to start a novel in between the ghostwriting. I was still ghostwriting, but I was able to start a novel in between. I can go into more detail about how I did that. But um, I, it took me a couple, about three and a half years to write Separation Anxiety. And um, I had been out of the game for, I mean, 2006, you know, <laughs> there was a, you know, Bush was still in awe. Like it was a very different world. It was many, many years Right. Ago. It feels like eons ago. It was eons. And I kept thinking to myself, I have to finish this novel while I still have friends in the business who haven't <laughs> retired. I mean, we're getting old um, because I had been working in Random House, you know, in my 20s. And my, all my friends were, you know, I have a really good friend. He's the publisher of... Putnam. I have friends who are, you know, they were all like really in senior positions. And I'm like, they're going to start retiring soon. So luckily I was able to, I had to get an agent and that was, it's always fun. Um, and uh, not fun, but I was able to sell it in the summer of 2018 and the book was published last March. And as we all know, unexpectedly, it was published really on the eve of the global pandemic. And so I was to be able to get out to a few bookstores in, in, you know, in life, in real life, um, in person, um, before the right. So that's my answer. A long road and many uh, different points of relaunching. Well, that, that is a great answer because it's a, it reflects, it reflects reality. And I especially appreciate the discussion about, uh, pivoting into ghostwriting, because I do want to talk to you a little bit more about what it means to make a living as a writer and, and, and the realities of that and all the different ways that can happen and ghostwriting is one of them. So I, I, I want to ask you uh, about that in a little bit, uh, but thank you for going into that detail. It was important. So I found out about you originally because when I was doing all of the research for a book that a nonfiction book that I wrote with Vivian Rabin called Back on the Career Track, which came out in 2007. Uh, We were doing research in 2004 and 2005 for this book and read everything we could get our hands on, uh, mostly nonfiction and academic studies and having all these conversations uh, with people in the work-life world. But we also read fiction about any time we could come across something that had to do with a relauncher. And your 2004 book, Piece of Work, is actually about a woman who relaunches her career as a publicist. And so I was quite fascinated with this and you, and you didn't even know it at the time, but that was um, my first introduction to you. So I wanted to know 
how did you get that idea to write that book? Because at the time, you know, I relaunched my career in 2001, 2004, very early on in the relaunch world, and no one was really talking about the concept. So was some of this like even a little bit autobiographical or uh, what was the genesis of that story? Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, the way I write fiction, it's very thinly disguised autobiographical fiction. I never, I never um, pretend otherwise. But it's funny you say that because my career started to tank so much earlier than most people's. Like, I think, you know, that I think by 2002, right after we moved to, to Newton, and I can, you know, I can sometimes try to figure out why this happened time wise, but it's not important for, for the purposes of our conversation. But my career really started to take a nosedive in 2002, three, four, five, et cetera. And that was way before, you know, that was way before a lot of people really hit the wall in 2008, 2007 because of the banks. Um, mm-hmm. so I yeah, the recession. Think, right. So mm-hmm. I always like to think I'm kind of a trendsetter, like with Animal Husbandry was one of the first <laughs> books about, you know, like later called Chicklet. So I like to think of myself. And I really was like on the forefront of going, really going under. I mean, you know, my husband mm-hmm. was a teacher and I was like supposed to be making the big bucks and suddenly it was like nothing. And there was a real sense of shame. And I know, I think you and I have talked about this. There was a real sense of shame about mm-hmm. this. And I'm using air quotes here, failure, career failure, which is what, you know, we're, we're perceived, especially if you're a, a writer like I was where I had a movie, you know, people are like, oh, what happened to you? You know, there's a sense of shame. Like, why aren't you, where are you? where's your stuff? Like, why aren't you as successful as you were before? It's very public. I mean, not that I is like really famous writers, but I mean, within my circles and people that I knew was really either unspoken or people really would say, what, what happened to you? And they would say it less, you know, sometimes they would say it with you compassion and other times they were sort of like, gee, what happened to you? And so right. there's a sense of shame. I think for all of us, when our careers are, are just, you're going down a path that is just something happens where either something's happening at home where we're dealing with loss or grief or illness or something, or the industry changes. And for me, it was kind of all of those things. There was a health situations going on. There was situations with my marriage. There was situation with my kid, you know, all these like very common stuff that happens with people's lives and it affects mm-hmm. your ability to earn and your ability if you're in a creative field, it can really affect your ability to be creative because you have to generate the work. So, you know, I've, I've been on both sides in terms of like, I've had a job where the work you sit at your desk passively and work is just dumped on you and you have to do it very difficult mm-hmm. if you're depressed or if something's going on, but at least the work is there when you're in a creative um, field, it's, you have to generate it. If you don't come up with the idea, if you don't execute the idea, there is no, there's no product. So the right. pressure is even more, um, on people who make their living by creating stuff or producing their own material. So that was just made everything more difficult. But, but back to your initial question. Um, yeah, it was very much based on this bottom falling out of my own career and, and, and trying to figure out how to come back. And so the original title for that book, I think was called the comeback, but it was Mm. felt a lot. And I've been fascinated for years and years with the sense of failure and success and how those two, terms and thoughts are very subjective. Um, what is constituted as failure, you know, and what's constituted as success and just how we see ourselves as has-beens or losers and, um, and how that is just an unfortunate way to think of 
the times when we're kind of transitioning from one thing to the other. Gosh, there's so much packed into what you're saying right now. You know, we've we've actually done some podcasts on mental illness and the long-term job search and uh, that comment you made about shame um, is sort of wrapped into the whole process of people who are in a prolonged job search. Uh, You know, you're talking about how shame was produced as a result of the prior public and, and big time success. And, you know, when you said that people had come to you at that point and said, gosh, like what happened to you? It reminded me of the introduction to a book called The Price of Motherhood that was written by Ann Crittenden, uh, who was a Pulitzer Prize nominated writer who worked for the New York Times. And in the introduction to her book, she said one of the reasons she wrote the book is because I, I think she had focused her career elsewhere for a while when um, after she had her child and she was walking around her neighborhood one day or some, walking around somewhere and someone ran into her and looked at her and said, didn't you used to be Anne Crittenden? <laughs> it's almost like, you, you know, her, identif- her identity as that Pulitzer Prize nominated writer was like her person. Like yeah. the two were fused. So anyway, I always remember that quote. That's amazing. And yeah, I thought it, it just captures so much about what, what all this means. And then this this other piece um, about the creative process and how when all these things are happening in your life, but your work is based on you producing something that, you know, you can't actually schedule and say, okay, so now between, you know, this date and that date, um, at these times, I am going to produce this book. Uh, And, you know, how you get yourself into the mindset where you can be productive. And, and is it a scary feeling to think about that? It's not that predictable. And sometimes you can get into a stretch where you're not as as productive. And, and I guess I'm, I'm interested in in your creative process and and you you've written about writer's block and you wrote one of my favorite things to do is not write so anything that involves quote research quote is high on my list of baby steps toward writing and I just like I know it's a serious topic but I thought that was a humorous way of looking at it yeah you know for me uh, you know, fear and anxiety and humor are all kind of fused together. Um, you know, the serious answer to your question is it's terrifying. You know, you don't have, and even if you do, if you do have, if one of the spouses is having like, you know, a really stable career, that's great. But, you know, I always look at couples who have that and every now and then the bottom falls out of that spouse too, in terms of their, they, they get fired or their company closes or you mm-hmm. can't really, you know, be completely, um, secure, but, you know, we were in a situation where my husband was teaching and I, and, and, and so I was the big sort of paycheck was always looked to, to come from me. And then there were just years and years where it just wasn't happening, you know, was not happening. And then I had, um, you know, I had my own health issues. I had breast cancer was caught very early, but I had a lot of surgery. So I kind of lost a year. Mm -hmm. And then, um, my husband had some mental health issues. My son had some learning issues and then both my parents got sick and died and I was taking care of them consecutively was first my mother, then my father. And so I lost 
years, you know, especially taking care of them. I was like running from dropping off my son to going to the hospitals or chemo things or whatever. And this is something that's very common. I wrote about it for the New York Times um, last February, right before my book came out, because it really was another shameful thing. You know, you're not supposed to talk about the fact that you're going broke. And, you know, this is a, I remember when um, very early in my sort of slide from making a lot of money to not making much for many years, my agent at the time, I've had a few different agents, but my agent at the time uh, called me. She said, oh, don't put that on your website. No, 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 don't, don't write about that, you know, about making a mortgage or something. And she said, it's, it's, it's like, she actually said, you know, it's very, people are going to feel really sorry for you. It's going to make them uncommon. It's cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't listen to her and I did it my own way. <laughs> and um, I don't know if that was right or wrong, but it felt very important to me. I was like, I'm not embarrassed. I mean, it is reality. And over the years, I think people have gotten more and more comfortable talking about it because it is, unfortunately, it is so common now. You see a lot of people, especially post, you know, during this pandemic and all that, but even before, really struggling um, financially and trying to fit everything in with, you know, the, the people, you know, being in that middle generation where you're taking care of kids and parents. Um, so the creative process has always been difficult. You know, when I was single, it was difficult. And then given these constraints was even more difficult, but, um, I found ways to do it. One way was, I mean, the ghostwriting made it very much a business like I had to do the work because mm-hmm. I was under contract and I also have this very after college I went on a whale watch and I'm very seasick and it was a miserable experience it was like four of the worst hours of my life and it was mostly mm-hmm. because the boat made two di- very different motions one motion of the boat was searching for the whale and the other was sitting and watching the whale and both motions to me were just horrendous, you know. And when we were in motion, I wished we would stop. And when we were stop, I wish we would we were in motion. And that's kind of like I am with writing. When I don't have a book contract, I'm full of anxiety. And when I mm-hmm. do have a book contract, I'm full of anxiety because then I have to produce. So it's very, I'm never happy. It's very, it's a very anxious, you know, um, anxiety producing. But with ghostwriting, at least there is the job in front of you that is pretty much clear what you have to do. You have a deadline and you have someone you're working for. And so it's less amorphous. Does it feel different because it's not your, you're like, you're someone else's translator. Or I, I don't know how, how, yeah. how you describe ghostwriting, but it's not your direct product. It's their product that you're working on. Exactly. So that is, that's really true in the sense that it, when I was had this terrible writer's block and then I had this, all the surgery and I was recovering, I was you know watching a lot of television and I ended up watching a reality show about a, a television matchmaker on A&E who was based in Buffalo, New York. And I had a blog at the time and I blogged about the show. And about a, two months later, I got a call from her producer and who said she wanted to write a book. And was I interested in ghostwriting? And of course I said, yes, even though I had no idea how to do it. Mm-hmm. This is one of those tips when you're relaunching, you know, just say yes, and mm-hmm. we'll figure out how to do it later. So um, I said yes, and I had the meeting and I got the job. And then, of course, I had I had to figure out who to ask how to do it. And so I lived in Newton at the time. And I, you know, a lot of people know BJ Novak from The Office. But mm. Bill Novak's father, I'm sure you know, Bill Novak, William Novak was one of the preeminent ghostwriters of the 80s and 90s. I mean, he made a fortune. He was just an incredible, he's an incredibly talented writer. And he wrote a lot of the really biggest um, books and kind of redefined 
ghostwriting for like all of the rest of us. I think it's like he got his, started to get his name on the jacket, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I had met him at some library fundraiser and I emailed him. I said, listen, we met once. I was wondering if you could just, you know, if I could just have two, five minutes of your time. He called me, we spoke for two hours and he gave me so much helpful advice um, that really helped me do something I had never done before, which was ghostwrite this book for this person. Um, and mm-hmm. I started it, but you know, in terms of relaunching, it was really, really by the seat of my pants in terms of, I just was like, well, I have these skills from fiction writing, which is to write in someone else's voice, you know, write in a character's voice. And so I had to talk myself through a lot of my fear of doing something new, which was just like, no, I have these skills. You know, I've written books before, you know, I write in other people's voices because when you're a fiction writer, you're writing characters. And so I can do this, you know, and I'm like a curious, super nosy person. So I can ask (laughs) questions. So I sort of had the skills and a lot of times you have to just talk yourself down from the, from the sheer terror of, of it, you know, and just say, no, I I have skills and I'm going to match them for this new thing and I can do this. And, um, and I did, and I wrote, I don't know, six or seven books and I enjoyed it to a degree. You know, it was great work. It always sounds like you're getting paid a lot, but you're really not because it's a whole bunch of payments and they come at different times. And the work is really, it's intense. You, you're sort of traveling a lot to meet with them and, you know, that kind of thing. But I was really grateful for it. And I'm sure I'll have to do it again. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be very happy to get ghostwriting work when I need it. So, wow. So that's very interesting. Uh, just commenting on, on a couple of things that you mentioned. Uh, the, interaction with Bill Novak as like reaching out to him based on you just happened to meet him at a, a library event and you reached out to him. And I, I don't know if you felt like nervous about it or like, what, how can I lose? I'll just reach out to him and, you know, oh, maybe he'll respond, maybe he won't. And then it turned out to be such a meaningful conversation, but I, that just illustrates for relaunchers to take the chance to reach out to someone who even you might, who you might even think is a long shot. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point because it was totally out of my comfort zone. I'm not a net, like a natural networker. Like I don't do that. I don't like ask for, I just, it was like beyond anything. And I had to really, you have to force yourself sometimes to do those things because you, you have to, if you, if you have to work. And that was always the frame with which I viewed everything was like, I have to do this. Like I need this job. (laughs) And so right. it forced me to do things that I normally would never do. And yet he was so kind. And I think most of the time, um, and that's why I really try, I often fail, but I, I really try if people contact me, I really try to be kind like that because people have been kind to me and have given me their time. So when I'm able, I really do try to do that, or I try to connect them. I'm a big connector and you're probably the same way. You know, I connect people because i People have done it for me and it's so useful. It's like, I can't help you, but you know what? I know someone who can. And if you can make that one little connection for someone, it's huge. You know, if you put them in touch with someone and that can lead to something, even if you can't, you're not in a position to help them or you don't know, like someone did contact me recently um, and she, she goes, I can't help this person. He's a student. Um, he's trans. Can you, and he wants to get into publishing. She said, I have no, I was like, I'll do it. Because I know mm-hmm. how important, you know, he's 21, you know, he's doing Zoom from Oberlin College, you know, I can, mm. him. I can at least put him in touch, you know what I mean? So it's just that kind of feeling of like, if you do it, you know, you help someone and, and 
and people have helped me. So yeah, you just have to bite the bullet and make that call or send that email. Mm. I hope everyone's listening because it's, it's a really, really important message. And it's something that a lot of people are, a lot of relaunchers are so hesitant to do. And that is the conclusion of part one of our conversation with Laura Zygman. Thanks for listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.